Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Josh Brown, welcome back to the Monolithic 2 part best games of all time wind-up thing. Hello, Scott Telford. I can't believe this, right? When we went in to record this yesterday, yesterday which will be time, yeah. next week for everyone listening to yes. this, uh, their time, uh, last week, sorry, um, I actually was a bit <laughs> worried because I'd, I'd come in with these grand assumptions that we would be able to split this into a two-parter, mm. it would go long, it would justify splitting it into a two-parter. And then we sat down and I thought, oh no, <laughs> what if we only go half an hour? We've only got five picks each to when talk about. When have we about. ever only gone half an I hour? I know, and then we went one hour 15. <laughs> <laughs> I'm really scared about where. how long we're going to go today. Could it go at one hour 30? Even will in the morning. like Less, I don't know. You know, if I cough and say the words Final Fantasy 16, we'll talk for more than half an hour before the rest of the day kicks in. There's not any other way to do it. Do not tell our bosses how much time they don't listen is, to this. is wasted. They don't know what's going on. we end up spending two hours of the day talking about no. Final Fantasy 16. Off the record. <laughs> Look, they're only reinforced by the fact that the audience is a big fan. We did a chatty list style thing. Yes. And which has been received very well over on the YouTube. So please go check that out. We thought we'd talk through a list instead. Obviously sticking to vague uh, timings for each entry on that thing just to see how it came together. I think it came together pretty well and I would recommend it. Anyway, speaking of things I would recommend, we're doing the greatest games of all time completely subjectively. I have no idea what the remainder of your list is. I'm going to recap where we were so far. If you checked out last week's episode, which I would recommend, um, that was numbers 10 through 6. On my side, it was a Assassin's Creed 2, Elder Scrolls Skyrim, God of War, Halo 2, God of War 2018, yeah. Halo 2, and The Legend of Zelda Breath of the Wild. You're 10 to 6. 10 to 6 for me was number 10, Call of Duty Warzone, number 9, which, which pops me every time, <laughs> by the way. Number 9, Disco Elysium, number 8, Mass Effect, number 7, Silent Hill 2, and number 6, the Last of Us Part Two. A lot of twos, spoilers yes. in my list, by the way. Uh, kind of vague, that. non-spoilers. I have no more twos in the rest of my, other than my number two. Interesting. But we'll get there. My number five is The Last of Us. Oh, yeah. that's a lovely bit of synergy. It is a bit. We talked about this last week for The Last of Us Part Two, but I've always preferred Last of Us Part One. I think the core reason why is that it just is, for me, at least so much more uplifting. I like the, the end message at the end of that game. Even though there is the whole duplicitous twist thing, there's something about the overall tonality of that game that is just a lot more, I don't know, life-affirming. It's not that those things aren't into, but I just prefer the feel of one. I definitely prefer the uh, chemistry of Joel and Ellie to Ellie and Dina or any other combination of characters or whatever. The best parts of two were Joel and Ellie for me. Yeah. Um, and I still really, I enjoyed my time with two, but I said this last week, it was just the feeling of like an ending just going like, ah, that's not what I wanted from Last of Us 2. It's not that it's not immaculate. It's just not what I wanted from it. Um, and so Last of Us 1, I mean, you talk about where Naughty Dog were at and that's sort of, you look at their trajectory. They were always one of my favorite devs. Crash is one of the first, 
literally the first game I ever played on PS1 yeah. um, back in the day. Um, love Jack and Daxter. More than re- more, most people I've come to find, whenever I do polls on their best games, Jack and Daxter's always trailing. Who are they? I don't know. Well, that's the thing, right? The, the Atari, I don't know, work for Atari. And, um, <laughs> but that's the thing. So I, I'm always a huge Jack and Daxter fan, and I love their pivot into Uncharted, everything being motion captured. They broke the mold on like Hollywood production in games. And then it was like no one expected The Last of Us back in 2013. You have to take yourself back to what it felt like to see that game. And I remember those original trailers, original gameplay demos like that were set in the hotel level and just finally going through it and it all just landing and hitting. And I just, I'm never, I love the combat. People over the years have said The Last of Us's combat is not very good or one of the weaker parts of the game. I disagree. I think it's massively impactful and weighty and I love just being this walking machine of death that is Joel over time. His animations change as the story goes on anyway. Um, yeah, I absolutely adore The Last of Us and I kind of prefer, I kind of wish that it was just a one-off thing. Ah, um, right. Just for me personally, I don't like that it's this big franchise thing. It's why we have the uh, t-shirts made, shout out to Pinky in the audience, um, for making the franchising of us t-shirts oh, yeah. because that's just how I view that thing now it was this immaculate one-off that didn't need more and i love it as a one-off man the last of us everyone's talked about the last of us Mm. over the past 10 years and i'm going to talk more about it right now because (laughs) it is an amazing game and one that i appreciate more with time i loved it the first time i played it which admittedly was a year after it came out when Mm. i got the remastered edition on the ps4 and what a weird you didn't play till then no, I didn't have a no PlayStation way. 3. Oh. I didn't have a PlayStation 3, so when I got the PlayStation 4, I caught up on all of those big oh, franchises that I missed. I went through The Last of Us. I went through the three Naughty Dog games at the right. time and a bunch of other stuff as well. <clears throat> just and super quick for that. Yeah, I on. remember when that game launched, and uh, I just met my now wife, and uh, and we were like supposed to have a whole afternoon out, and I was like, no, 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 I, I need to show you the opening of The Last of Us. Just right. trust me. We need to sit and do this. And we both played through a whole ton of The Last of Us. And like, I mean, I was obviously helped because now we're married, but that was one of those things where I was like, this is so special you just need to see this well get this imagine me in 2014 right i knew the last of us was a game that was critically Mm. incredibly well received i knew people referred to it as one of the best games ever made but i didn't know anything about it Mm. i didn't know the setup i didn't know the characters i didn't know what scenes i was supposed to look forward to the only thing i knew that was a big deal was the giraffe scene because yes. people were kind of up in arms that they spoiled it in the remastered yeah, yeah, um, trailer. But I didn't know the context of it. I didn't know anything. So I was going into it completely fresh, but with these high expectations still. And yeah, from the opening scene, it completely blew me away <laughs> and continued to subvert my expectations as it went. You know, mm. it's funny thinking back now just how worried I was about Joel and Ellie and whether they would make it through the game right. alive and when Joel falls on that rebar I thought are they going to kill him <laughs> like this is is he gone are we going to play the rest of the game as Ellie uh-huh. that element of surprise was so potent even back then um, obviously to me I preferred The Last of Us Part 2 and that was partly because when I played The Last of Us Part 2 I played that game, then I played The Last of Us 1 again, then I played The Last of Us Part 2 again, and I thought there was a big gulf between them. Mm, However, there is, there is. since Part 1 came out, the remake of The Last of Us, that's just made me appreciate the game even right. more. I love The Last of Us Part 1. I think the way it um, provides parity with The Last of Us Part 2 from a gameplay and mm. graphical perspective is amazing. I love the added touches to the character's performance, but even without that, it is one of the best stories in gaming. It mm. has some of the best characters and best performances in gaming even 10 years on in after all of the games it has inspired and The Last of Us Factions is an incredibly underrated <laughs> multiplayer mode that everyone should um, have played at the time I think. Dude, very true. Like yeah that fa- I always forget about the Factions mode even though that was a 
big thing back uh, back in the day. Um, yeah, it's one of those things where the first time through, there's nothing like it. And watching yeah. those original trailers and the gameplay stuff, like I said before, I didn't um, clock that. I mean, I didn't. I think back then we didn't even know that the opening sequence was going to feature Sarah, like Joel's oh. daughter. So I just assumed that we were playing as the character that we were going to go on for for the rest of the game. And obviously, the opening plays out like as it does. And so that massively hit me, where I was just like, I was in absolute pieces after that, um, because I couldn't believe they'd done that. And in the moment, I was like, oh, what the hell's the rest of this game? Maybe the yeah. whole the marketing was a lie. I have no idea. And then, because I didn't follow it that closely, it was just a couple of gameplay demos um, on the side. I was a student. I wasn't keeping up with everything, single thing. And so, yeah, I, very little compares in a story context to the first time through The Last of Us. The Last of Us Remastered was the first game I ever bought with a paycheck. And ah. it was pretty much all of that paycheck. It was oh. one one day's work. That yeah, was yeah. just an absolute slog, <laughs> man. It was, uh, well, I won't go into detail about what it was, but uh. it was just boring standing around twirling a, twirling a sign, and it did nothing for my <laughs> unfit legs at the time because I was trying to talk to people, and they weren't very happy yeah. for whatever reason. Anyway, not the point. The point is I had that bad day mm-hmm. and then took the paycheck and bought the greatest, one of the greatest That's games of, the Last of, Us. of all times. And it didn't disappoint. Like you said there, I think the way The Last of Us 1 is structured mm. and paced is pretty much perfect. It is better than The Last of Us Part 2 in that regard, mm. I think, because it's so tight. I think so, yeah. And um, it moves from one set piece to the next with such grace, always introducing... Now iconic characters Mm. like Tess, like Henry and Sam, like whoever, Mm -hmm. like David, you Mm -hmm. know, constantly changing its seasons, which I think is a great touch. I love that in any game, you know, that just... stylish cuts to black. stylish cuts to black. Not knowing when you're going to pick up once the game kicks in again. Like I said, keeps you on your toes, feels like this grand self-contained thing that... It's almost crazy to think about how much disarray the project reportedly Mm. was in Mm -hmm. right up until it launched, where people had no idea if it was going to be good, if it was going to work. And then you play the finished article and you think, how did you ever have doubts? (laughs) How did you ever have doubts? I think for me, it's like I love the combo of Druckmann and Straley. Like for me, that's the thing I can tell is missing going forward after that. There's a lightheartedness that uh, Bruce Straley brings to Naughty Dog or brings to to, uh, Druckmann's writing style. Um, And he's talked about it loads. Like Straley's talked about, you know, Druckmann would always want to be as dark as possible and then Straley would say something around the lines of well you can't go that dark we need to remind people that life is worth living or whatever it is and then balance it back out again um, and obviously Straley went on sabbatical after The Last of Us or la- after Uncharted 4 I think it was Yeah. And, um, and yeah and you can sort of tell the sort of like descent into really like dark subject matter and oily kind of subject matter across Last of Us 2 which is one of its greatest strengths but if we're talking completely subject- uh, subjectively I definitely prefer the original um, your number 5 sir my number 5 is this was tough Because it is Resident Evil Remake, but I Ah. really wrangled over which Resident Evil to put on here. Mm. Because, yeah, I could have thrown another one in, but I just kind of wanted something to sum up my love for the Resident Evil franchise, because otherwise, genuinely, it could be like all the top five (laughs) could be made (laughs) of Resident Resident Evil Evil games. Resident Evil 4, of course, iconic, a lot of people's favorites, one of the best games of all time still, Mm. in my opinion. Mm -hmm. But to me, if I'm thinking about it, Resident Evil Remake is the one. It got me into survival horror. It got me into Resident Evil as a whole. And I just think it's pretty much a perfect game. Like Mm -hmm. the framing of you controlling a character in this spooky mansion, going from corridor to corridor, room to room, uncovering new horrors in each one, whether that's a giant snake, whether it's (laughs) a, a, a mutated plant or a tyrant or a secret laboratory underground. Um, It was also 
you know, pure nostalgically, one of the first games I was introduced to. Again, mm. my dad, the absolute nightmare person that he was, <laughs> playing Resident playing Resident Evil 1 uh, in front of me while I was too young and getting Great. very scared about the first zombie um, reveal and all uh, of that, the dogs jumping through the window. It had a lasting impact, and I'm just so pleased that the remake itself allows the rough-around-the-edges original to completely shine in a new way. I still think the Resi 1 remake is one of the best-looking games of all time. Mm. We talked yes. briefly about um, fixed camera angles in the Silent Hill 2 entry, but if you want something to convince you as to why fixed camera angles rule, it's this game. The Dude, that... The first time they showed off Resident Evil on the GameCube, because my friend yeah. had got a GameCube for his birthday back in whatever year that would have been when it first launched on GameCube. And I could not believe that was playable. That just at the time that was that was one of the most significant graphical jumps ever. Like and even now it still looks phenomenal, but back then it was unbelievable. It does matter. Like obviously it's not as technically impressive as some cutting edge games today, but mm. the style it has, you know, helped by those um, fixed camera angles, which just give you these great horror movie yeah. compositions in each corridor to unnerve you or keep something out of sight or put you in a particular headspace combined with, you know, the incredible lighting effects, the still really great character models mm. and just the really um, nice attention to detail throughout the mansion. It is pretty much a perfect remake in my opinion. Um, it's one of the perfect survival horror games and the things that the remake adds to the core experience, you know, like the crimson heads, yes. which make taking down the zombies a risk-reward thing because, mm. yeah, you might be able to expend some ammo and take down a zombie, but if you don't have the fuel to burn them, which you probably won't because <laughs> fuel is really limited mm. in the game, they have the chance to come back as stronger zombies when you return through this area later on, and you will return because there's so much backtracking in this mm -hmm. first game. That combined with the Lisa Trevor stuff that's added and just other neat additions like a door that has a wonky handle that eventually will be broken, linking two screens, mm -hmm. um, just subvert your expectations because, of course, in the original game, every screen was kind of its own self-contained thing. Like, mm -hmm. zombies wouldn't follow you through them. It was kind of like a hard reset, whereas this kind of smashed that line and made um, fans of the original, kept them on their toes. And I it love... It was a great a combination of attracting newcomers to the yes. franchise and... In the same way that the recent Resident Evil 4 remake did, you know, making something new and interesting for returning players. That's the thing. I was going to say, Pink, like, I love when a remake or a continuation kind of just winks and, and nods at the fan base. Like, we know. We know yeah. what you're expecting here. We know what kind of tropes we set in motion. Kind of one of the things I love the most about the Final Fantasy VII remake is that it's directly addressing the original game um, more towards the end. But yeah, that original playthrough through the first Resident Evil, I remember just being, I mean, I played the original when that very first came out. Yeah. And it's like the remake, I played a tiny bit on my friend's GameCube. We would play a little bit after school every day. Um, but obviously it was mostly him playing through it. And then I got it myself on the PS4, and so I've never actually finished that game. Mm. I've only I've gone through it. So it's like Final Fantasy VI to me. I finally finished that last night, but um, or I guess it'll be last week by the time you hear this. And it's one of those games that I've absolutely loved my time with every time. But there's always just some hard part of it that puts me off in terms of the saving or whatever. Yeah. But I do love that arduousness. It makes it super rewarding. And there's nothing. Honestly, there is nothing that matches the atmosphere of that first game. No. Like even subsequent Resident Evils, I think it is in the way that it's literally shot through the fixed camera angles. And um, like even though like RE2 and three would keep that 
stuff and Code Veronica and whatever. The first one, because it's the big Spencer Mansion, it just, it, oh, yeah, thinking about it, it's so picturesque. It's it is. Just, it is just so well made. Like, it's such a one-off thing. You can just kind of give people and go, this is Resident Evil. It has, the remake especially, has this real cohesive um, design mm. to it where you can look at a screenshot from it, and even though you might be in a completely different location, mm. you might be in Lisa Trevor's cabin, you might be in a wing of the mansion, you might be in the laboratory, you can tell it's from Resident Evil Remake in a good way mm-hmm. because it has this just holistic um, vibe to it. You can tell everyone was working on the same page with the exact same goals, mm. and they managed to just completely nail those goals. I think as a survival horror game as well, I love the kind of stuff that sometimes frustrates you, you know, the limited <laughs> saving, the limited inventory space, because it, it it forces me to think, and I don't often think in games. Sometimes I don't like <laughs> thinking in games, but playing through Resident Evil Remake for the first time, it was one of the only games I've kept, like, a, a notepad mm. for, where I was jotting down where key items were. If I was leaving, you know, a few rounds of shotgun shells uh, or shotgun ammo in this room, I would jot that down to come back to it later. Mm. The you, I talk so much on this podcast that I, I'm worried that I'm becoming a soundboarding cliche of Talking myself. Talking on a podcast. I know, can you believe Horrific. it? Um, I talk so much about like how much I enjoy mastering a space and yes. conquering a level. And Resident Evil Remake was the game that made me realize that I love that stuff because mm. the Spencer, Spencer Mansion, when you originally arrive, is overwhelming. You mm-hmm. don't really know where you're going. Like I said, you don't know what's behind this door, that door. Is something going to jump through the window? Where is this giant plant? But eventually, room by room, as you clear out the zombies mm. or figure out which ones you can run around, you get that mastery of the space. You feel like you are becoming powerful, not because you're getting bigger weapons, even though you do or more ammo even Mm. though you do it's because you know how to navigate the rooms and you know how to mitigate the risks you know how to mitigate the potential danger that they pose and i just think that's amazing because even though you as the character haven't really changed you as the player now have the knowledge to overcome the challenges that the game throws at you and man i love it when any game plays on that level you should play more metroidvanias (sighs) But he's the thing. That's the whole thing. No, it is. But the Metroidvanias have loads of zombies and and fixed camera angles, my friend. Metroid Fusion kind of does. Maybe I'll play that one. There's some ex-parasite infested men. That sounds good. Yeah. Yeah. If you want to play Metroid Dread, that's the most horror one. But I think the core thing that you're getting at, which I like, love, is that idea of like um, like the horror based space being mastered. Like at first you're afraid of it or trepidatious or it's like something like the Spencer Mansion is just this labyrinthine mess of corridors that you just can't figure out initially. But then like you said, you start to master it. You get comfortable in that space and it's like being like the final girl or something in a slasher where it's like, okay, come on, like bring it on or whatever. I I, I know what I'm up against now kind of thing. At least I think I'm using that term correctly. I've not watched that many slasher films. (laughs) No, that's yeah, what that thing is. I think it works. But yeah, I think for the first, yeah, the first Resident Evil is a, a mighty pick. Speaking of mighty picks, my number four is Tekken 3. Whoa! One of the greatest pieces of anything of all time. Find me a flaw. Find me a polygon out of place. Find me a single thing wrong with this perfect video game. It's immaculate. Games have been trying to live up to Tekken 3 for decades yeah. now, haven't they? Tekken been? itself has never Tek- outdone <laughs> Tekken 3. And I love Tekken with all my heart. And um, I actually love Tekken 7. I mean, it's one of those things where I, I just love Tekken overall. But Tekken 3, oh my God. And again, all of my Game of the Year picks, sorry, Game of the All Time picks are, because they're subjective and whatever, are rooted in what was it like the first time I went through them? What did it mean, like, you know, to me at that time? Um, and just how impressive they were. The leap from Tekken 2 to 3 was unbelievable. And um, those character models for Jin, for Harang, like, they're just incredible. And, like, the stages and the music. The music. Tek- 
Tekken music. Tekken 3's music. Tekken 3 and Tekken Tag, I think, have the best soundtracks of the entire saga, entire canon. What's the word I want? Entire franchise. Yeah. Um, but still, Tekken 3's massively stands out. I love the arcade versions of all the themes. I love the home releases they did. Jin Kazama's main theme riff is just the coolest thing on the planet. Um, all the story endings are just phenomenal as well. Like, it was when they really started doing, like, not fleshed out, but more fleshed out than they'd done in terms of knitting the lore together. Um, and just all the stuff with Ogre and True Ogre at the end of yes. the story. And when you're a kid, it's like, what the hell is that? Can I beat that thing? He's throwing fireballs at me. I just, I absolutely adore every single thing about Tekken 3. And I get that there was a frame rate disparity between where it was revealed in, the, in America versus us. But when the PlayStation 1 Mini came out, um, we'd always had the lower frame rate version. So um, to me, it just felt like coming home again because right. I hadn't played Tekken 3 in like, whatever, 15 years or something. Um, I'd emulated it every now and then. There's a few websites where you can just dial it in and play. But it was one of those things where I got the PlayStation 1 Mini and I just played all Tekken 3 all weekend. And it was like, oh my God, this thing. This thing, all the, all the muscle memories there and all the combos. I can play everybody in it. Yeah. Phenomenal. Tekken 3 is not only the first Tekken that I ever played, but it was one of the first games that I ever played. Nice. You mentioned there, you know, Crash Bandicoot. That was another. Hercules, the game, was yeah, the, the first game. game I ever played. But Tekken <laughs> 3 was the first one that I, I remember really loving. Yeah. It's kind of what you mentioned there. When you're a kid, especially, um, it throws so much at you that seems mysterious, mm. not just in the story itself, but some of the unlockable characters. I remember seeing some of those without having unlocked them myself and kind of wondering, are they in the game? Like, how do I <laughs> like get gone. them? It felt like something mysterious. It felt like something bigger than it was. And yeah, I'm sure a lot of that is nostalgia and the mm. fact that I had a tiny kid brain and couldn't comprehend the stuff. The games back but then were bigger because yeah. we didn't know how they were made back as much back then. Exactly. There was... There was more secretive stuff around them. You know, you were totally. encouraged to seek out guides and uh, track down cheat codes mm. and look for secrets because de developers pre-internet just like hid stuff in those games <laughs> and they treated you by figuring it out if you could. But as a core game, as a as a as a fighting system, what a satisfying set of characters to play as, what a satisfying set of combos to use. Mm -hmm. Everyone can remember playing as Eddie Gordo and just absolutely <laughs> spamming the crap out of those kicks. I always maintain that I played Eddie Gordo correctly. I'm always like, <laughs> I can, I can, I know his moves. I can like play that dude properly. It's like, I can tell if you're button bashing and I will pick you apart as somebody else. But if I need to play as Eddie Gordo, I'll play as him properly. Yeah. I remember we had, we had a little mini staff tournament thing the other month and I was being accused of button bashing. I was like, look at my hands. I'm playing him properly. I um, never played him properly. I played him in the cheesiest way possible. Just nutting the controller over and over again. You talk about Cool Man in Tekken 3, at least, again, to my young kid brain, but even now, was the coolest thing in the entire Still, world. Is that artwork's incredible. So confident, great, memorable, iconic character designs. Like you said, the artwork, the music, mm -hmm. all of that stuff. And again, the mystique around those characters. I always remember playing as Yoshimitsu and being like, who is this freak? Yeah. I want to know more about him. What's this laser sword? Is he an Alien. Why does he have these strange moves where he just stops fighting? Tekken 3's Yoshimitsu design is the best one as well. Unreal. Like, I love it, his yeah. stupid squid look from Tekken 7, but yeah. it's like that when he was uh, when he was like walking that line between like Cyber Ninja and like weird alien. Like yeah, that his look and everything about Tekken 3, the art, uh, Tekken 3's art direction is just like next level. Absolutely, such man. a confident you know, pocket. I don't think I found a fighting game I loved as much as Tekken 3 until maybe Mortal Kombat Deadly Alliance or right. Mortal Kombat Deception on the PlayStation 2. Like it took that long even mm. Tekken 4 which I actually think is really underrated and cool I like the changes that were made to the I didn't uh, at the time but I definitely appreciate it now right like I have it on my Steam Deck like it's it's a fun curio it's like the DMC Devil May Cry of that franchise where I, they just overhauled everything I think I was like the perfect age for it because mm. all of the stuff they were doing and all of like the 
redesigns of the characters as a oh the characters a, are sick yeah, yeah as a young guy I was just like this tone is awesome it's cool it's edgy it's mm-hmm. it's what I want right now in like the early 2000s mm-hmm. but looking back now it was because I never really thought about Tekken for years and years and it was only a few years ago when I realized there was this kind of stigma around Tekken 4 and people really mm. didn't like it because I was young. the grapples for God's sake well this what is are the you thing. doing because I was young and didn't know any better and had only really played Tekken 3 at that uh, point I just was like well this is just the next Tekken for game. me it was like because Tekken 4 was like yeah there's a lot to love about Tekken 4 especially the character design the general sort of like um, iconography across that game but yeah they got rid of the grapples because they wanted to make it where you had a well they, there was one grapple per character but they made it so that one of them was always a position switch but the thing that they advertised going into that was environmental destruction the idea that you could just like high kick a dude like through a wall yeah. but then when you finally did that in the game it just looked terrible like they just mm. bounced off the wall and fell straight down whilst everything crumbled behind them you didn't really go through anything so I remember and that was up against Dead or Alive which like Dead or Alive 2 at the time was like setting the bar for that stuff yeah. um, even when it was against Tekken Tag um, but yeah it's one of those things where like Tekken has such a legacy and I think that everything about Tekken 3 is just like next level also the Tekken ball mode massive shout out to that. Yes. I love that mode. I love Tekken Force mode. I wish they would do a full-on Tekken Force game and just do a 3D final fight thing in that engine. It plays supremely well. Urban <sighs> Rain was great, but it's not Tekken. This is it. Tekken 3 was the full package because mm. you not only had that great arcade mode, but you had all of these extra modes that were awesome as well. Like the amount, I can't even remember what it is called, mm. but I played it so much with my brother growing up where you could pick like seven different fighters. Oh, the team just, battle. Yeah, the team yeah. battle. And you just had this big gauntlet. I remember that feeling so new and fresh at the time. It might have been in a bunch of other games, but I didn't know. Mm. Combined with, like you said, like the Tekken Force stuff or everything else, it's just like... 8v8 uh, on Tekken with all randoms between two people and well, see what the game serves you is the way to play. Like you said, we did that the other month in the office yeah. and it still held up. I think that's the great thing about Tekken 3. It's not just this nostalgia um, hit that you can go back to. You can go back to Tekken 3 now in whatever form and <laughs> experience still one of the <laughs> best, most immediate fighting games of all time. Yeah, man. You'll still you'll still get it. That's what I love yeah. a lot. Like Every single game that we're talking about, you can just <clears throat> give it to someone. It meant something different at the time in, a, in an altogether orders of magnitude more positive kind of way, but you can still give people these games well, and they'll still work. You'll know this more than me, sorry, but mm-hmm. before we move on, like, yeah. what other fighting games were out around that time? I know you obviously had your Street Fighters, you had your um, Mortal Kombat, mm-hmm. you had your Soul Calibers and whatnot. I can't remember anything around that period, apart from maybe Street Fighter 2, that felt as... Um, forward-thinking mm. and innovative as Tekken 3, well, to especially me, that 3D uh, art style. Yeah, well, <clears throat> that's kind of the thing. When Tekken 3 came out, I was only like eight years old or something. I mean, I played Tekken 2, and I did have Tekken 1, um, but I started on Tekken 2. That was the one that me and the 1975's John Woff both played. Ah! And so we both grew up playing Tekken 2 quite a lot. <coughs> as I cough. And, um, but yeah, we so we played a hell of a lot of Tekken 2, and we were both really looking forward to Tekken 3. And then we bought Tekken 1, just thinking like, well, we might as well, because we should know where we're coming from or whatever. Um, but at the time, I mean, other than um, one of my friends had Soul Edge, which was the original version of Soul Calibur. Um, but I think in terms of, I'm trying to remember which years they all landed in. But in terms of like the fighting game scene of the late 90s, yes, you did have Street Fighter. That was what mostly dominated. But it, for me, it was thought of as an arcade game. It wasn't yeah. like, I had it on PS1, but it was like Street Fighter Alpha 3, I think was the PS1 version. Um, but overall, Tekken was the king, and it was we just caned Tekken 2, um, playing as Kazuya, playing as Devil and Angel and everything. Um, and so it was just that thing where we played Tekken 2 so much. Like I said, that leap from 2 to 3, all your muscle memory carries over. You have all the moves that you had before, but more of them. It plays even better. It was just, it was everything. Like, it was because there wasn't that much else to go up against, but yeah. it absolutely dominated that field. I played Tekken 2 
um, years after it came out. Right. I'm talking like late 2010s, mm. and I couldn't get into it for whatever reason. It just it's so floaty when you jump. The jumps are bad. Absolutely, and it just you know not being able to get into that game made me appreciate the leap that Tekken 3 took yeah. even more because, you know, they're two games released relatively close together and yet one stands the test of time and one, in my opinion, doesn't. You no, know? I, yeah, I think, t- like, one and two are fun to go back to as one of those franchises where you see what they were building, where they were coming from. And I remember playing second one in the arcades when I was even younger. Like, I would go to different, um, like, uh, gym fitness classes that my parents would go to and I would just spend time in the arcades that were connected to the facility. So I would just play Tekken 1. Um, and Virtual Fighter, that's what I was trying to think of. The original Virtual Fighter that's what was doing the rounds at the time. I think Virtual Fighter 2 was the first game to go 3D. Right. Um, and, like, there's a character called Jeffrey that I used to play all the time. But, um, but yeah, like, that field, 3D Fighters, just was so untapped back then. Um, but, yeah, we should move on. I we could should. talk about Tekken for the rest of my life. Um, that was my number four. My number four is Metal Gear Solid 2 oh! Sons of oh! Liberty. Shout. This will always be my personal favorite. Metal Gear Solid game um, because it was one of the first big sequels that I remember looking forward to so much. I played Metal Gear Solid 1, but I was slightly too young for it. I hadn't finished it. Again, watched my dad play a lot of it. But when it came <laughs> around to MGS2 releasing, there was so much hype around it. I remember yeah. reading so many magazines about what this game was going to be, the cutting-edge graphics at the time. remember getting the demo disc, playing the chapter, uh, the tanker chapter to mm-hmm. death. Did you buy Zone of the Enders to get that? I didn't. I, I did. Unfortunately, I did not. I just had a right. disc in a magazine, I think, if I recall, and managed to get it that way. But <laughs> I, I, if I had the money, Scott, I would have absolutely bought Zone of the Enders. I, was, I think it. I got that it for a birthday win. present, but I was like, yeah, I bought Zone of the Enders for Metal Gear Solid 2. Yeah. Maybe maybe I ended up with that uh, through, like, a cousin or something, and maybe mm. I stole their disc to play MGS. <laughs> I can't... I thought it was a demo disc, but maybe I'm... I thought they... Because that, um, that was the whole thing. It was a like, army of the, at the time. It yeah. was like, if you want to play Metal Gear Solid 2, you have to buy this other game. Well... Um, but unless they later put it out somewhere else. This is the thing. You know... Me, at the time, it would have been a few years after. Mm. I wouldn't have got oh, the right, PlayStation okay. 2 at launch. It, it wouldn't have been when the game mm. itself came out. I got it secondhand a little bit later. Um, so it might have been like after the fact. But still, didn't know anything about it. And this was a game that I played over and over and over again. Speed, I speed ran it before I knew speed running was a thing where right. I was skipping all the cutscenes. I was playing the game in like two hours because <laughs> I just wanted that hit. Uh-huh. And being as young as I was... I wasn't outraged that I wasn't playing a solid snake. Mm. I knew it was weird. It wasn't necessarily what I wanted or was expecting, but I came to love Raiden so much yeah. as a character, as this rookie guy looking up to Snake, fighting all these interesting bo- bosses. And what's interesting about MGS2, again, it's not just a nostalgia thing, because I go back to MGS2 every few years and play <laughs> through it and continue to appreciate it in a new way. Obviously, when I was younger, I kind of loved how wacky the characters are, love how wacky the setting is and Mm. the gameplay and all of that but as you get older you realize how prescient the story is how much it's like saying about like human connection and the computer age and all of that (laughs) good stuff Mm -hmm. and in terms of what i want out of metal gear as well while i love snake eater and while i love mgs5 and certainly love mgs1 the setting of the big shell for me Mm. is kind of unmatched it blends that line between sci-fi and reality so well. I love the sterile hallways. I love the cleanness of the 
design. I mm. love the sneaking suit that Raiden has. It just has a color palette. It has an aesthetic that I, I vibe with a lot. And because of that, it, it sticks out as a personal favorite. Oh my God. We talk about Metal Gear Solid and we'll get to more Metal Gear Solids as we go. The Metal Gear Solid 2, I mean, that thing was life-defining. Like, I mean, that, like I said, I pulled one of the Enders to play the demo. I counted the days until it was released. I remember, I mean, I went through that thing over and over and over again, just unlocking everything, getting Raiden's brown wig. Yeah. Um, just to make sure I had every single unlockable possible. It was just such a monumental release. And I just, I love that all the different improvements that they made. Like, yeah, in the demo, like you said, there's all the tanker section stuff, which it's worth shouting out the atmosphere of that tanker stuff. Cause it does change when you get to the big shell. Like the, all the tanker stuff is so rain swept and you have the Harry Gregson Williams score underneath everything. Yeah. That build where it's the hooded figure on the bridge, which I know is how they re revealed it at E3, which are my favorite E3 reveals as well. Um, back then I used to tape that off my TV. Nice. Um, Cause I, they, they, I forget, might've been official PlayStation magazine or something released um, the footage from E3 on a disc and then uh, on a game disc. And I wanted to be able to watch that whenever I wanted. So I would record that off there. Uh, Metal Gear Solid 2 is also the game that young me uh, recorded all the cutscenes on a video for. So I could just watch them back over and over again. I made Metal Gear Solid the movie back That's then. That's amazing. And I like, I got a bit of paper and I made some Metal Gear artwork and made like a cover sleeve for it. I'd worship that thing. I mean, Metal Gear Solid 2 was like, yeah, it was everything. I mean, uh, and I'll get to it exactly why as my list sort of unfolds. But yeah, there was something about that game that I remember the run up to release and I remember the conversations in the magazines saying like, it's not what you think it is. And like, um, something's different. And they, one of those magazines, and I'm pretty sure it was a videotape as well, had the spoiler tape where it was like, on here is what everyone's talking about. And I watched that. So I knew Raiden was in there. Right. I didn't know what I was looking at, um, but the, the footage that was in there, it was leaked footage, it was of, of the Fat Man boss fight. Yeah. But the only thing that was in there was like a couple of minutes of like from the top down view, some dude with a white wig running around shooting some guy on roller skates. And I was like, what the hell is this? Because the only thing we had at that point was the tanker stuff. And so that kind of just made it more exciting. But yeah, I never hated Raiden either. I always thought he was like solid enough. I like what the, the story they were doing. And solid was, enough? He was solid enough. And I always remember um, Solid Snake Simulation, the uh, Raiden, sorry, but Hideo, Hideo Kojima saying that the whole point of that character was to bolster Snake. Yeah. You're supposed to be this weaker, inferior dude next to him. That first time that Raiden sees Snake in the elevator, and you're supposed to feel like, oh, I wish I was, I wish I was that guy. Yeah. That's the whole point. He was like, I did all of this to add perspective to Snake. So I loved that. It only made that character even more, you know, uh, monolithic. That's it. You know, I don't know really what the opinion of Raiden was at the time in terms of why they disliked him. I know he was despised, yeah. but I, I was never around for like the arguments. I just know people okay. hated him for like the bait and switch and whatnot. At the time, um, it was because Snake was like this totem of masculinity and then Raiden was this more effeminate dude, which right, is intentional. Right. I mean, Raiden was originally designed to be more feminine and kept a lot of those traits anyway. Well, this is it. I think there's so much intention behind Raiden as a character. It's not just done to subvert your expectations mm. and give you this kind of bait and switch surprise. You're not playing as who you think you are mm. like you're literally this solid snake imitator right from the start like you even you're, use, called, solid you're snake. called solid snake you're using the code name and it's under this kind of blend between is this a vr simulation is this real life you know mm. raiden has been on so many vr missions before this but this is his first time in the field mm -hmm. he's played the shadow moses um incident just like we as players did he's such a good cipher mm. for the player but also, that's incorporated into the story in really fascinating ways, mm -hmm. I find, as the reality of the entire situation kind of crumbles around you. You know, what he's there to do, his mission turns out to be a complete fake and a fraud. He's getting manipulated just like the mm -hmm. player's getting manipulated. And for my tiny mind, again, I'd never <laughs> experienced 
anything like that. And mm. when the game gets weird towards the end, when you get on Arsenal gear, which is this weird, empty void, and it like, yeah. doesn't make any... It's meant to represent like, a, um, a, a, um, like a biological system. All the yeah. parts of it are named after human body parts. Yeah, yeah. It, it, like, again, it doesn't really make you know sense in a proper logistical sense mm. or from a what we know as reality, but... It kind of it works on an emotional level. The way it breaks down your relationship with the colonel when he starts going strange and he starts <laughs> glitching out. He needs I'll, scissors. I'll never forget that happening for the first time and having no idea what was going on. Same. Those spooky codec calls. What's going on with Rose? Who is Ryden? Mm-hmm. What is relationship? I remember my friend at the time, uh, one of my best friends at the time, rang me to say that their game, he was playing through it with a different friend, and their, their screen had said fish and mailed. Yeah. And he was like, what do we do? What do we do? Uh, <laughs> and he, oh, it's broken. It's broken. I was like, no, 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 just keep going. Just keep going. It's yeah. fine. And obviously the game still lets you play through that bit, but they'd stopped moving at that point just to see what was going to happen. And uh, yeah, all those things worked perfectly back then. They did, man. And it's just, uh, it's such a risk to do that, even in like the, the modern space. But it introduced me to, even though I'd played MGS1, like what Kojima was all about, yeah. what he was in interested in what little tricks he liked to play on the play and I lapped it up and that's not even mentioning just how good the set pieces from a gameplay perspective are those incredibly memorable boss fights like vamp is such a mm. great spooky character um his reveal is again is one yeah. of the coolest one of the we- most well shot action sequences in gaming history like that's it's right. the, it's barely been topped really like in terms of the, just the way that dude's introduced the horror elements and then the stylish side of it it's great yeah man like he's amazing i even love solidus snake with his yeah. p90 and tentacle doc doc ock arms mm-hmm. when you're in that place and you're fighting all of the metal gear rays it just has something special to it that I don't think is, for me anyway, has been topped in the MGS franchise mm. uh, since in terms of its ambition and its scope and its uh, real unique well, sci-fi frame. No, same. I mean, it's worth like mentioning that this was meant to be Kojima's last one. Like, this was originally his last one. This was also him like off the leash kind of thing, or him being really annoyed at the way Metal Gear Solid 1 had been translated in the West and him um, forcing, Konami, well, saying to Konami, look, I need full creative control. Um, which I'll get to when I talk about Metal Gear Solid 1, if it's in my top three. Mm, is it? Um, and so it's one of those things where I, I, you can tell there's always that big leap between the tone of Metal Gear Solid 1 and 2, and then you either vibe with one or the other. Yeah. And, uh, and I always love 2 as well. But, like, yeah, it, I just I love how much Kojima becomes Kojima in this game. Like, we knew his name from the original. Yeah. Um, but this is the one where he was like, nah, I've got all these other ideas for tonality stuff, for infusing Western tropes with anime stuff and being more over the top and whatever. And so much philosophy in this one, yes. especially towards the end. Um, like you said, it's massively predictable of how we are right now, all the conversations about online gated communities and everything else. Like, that is what we're living in. And he was right on the money 20 years ago. And you can also take a freeze spray and point it at an enemy and you can <laughs> shoot them in their crotch and they will grab hold of their crotch. That kind of True. level of interactivity, again, was mind-blowing at the time. Yeah. I still love it now. Like, when instead of just, you know, sneaking up behind someone, knocking someone out, I love the ability to hold them up, you know, yes. point your gun at Make them. Make them shake a little dance. Make them shake, get, like, items from them, have that kind of weird element of humor about it. You know, it just... I, I remember playing that game and obviously looking at it as a graphical step up, but also from the amount of interactions you can do mm. within the player space, just thinking, like, how have they programmed this? I remember the <laughs> first time on the tanker where you are Solid Snake and you open one of the doors by turning the wheel yep. and you press the button faster. And you... Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact 
you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Before we go any further, I want to talk to you about today's sponsor, Masterclass. With the amount of time we spend discussing and analyzing video games on this channel, it's always good to understand exactly how these experiences are put together. And fortunately for me, I can do just that with Masterclass. With Masterclass's streaming service, you can learn from the best to become your best, studying and growing with over 200 plus of the world's leading instructors. For me, I've been having a blast using a class on video game design by The Sims creator Will Wright to find out exactly how game mechanics are designed around player psychology as well as learning how important playtesting is to shipping the titles that you and I both love. But it hasn't stopped there, as I've also been brushing up on my practical filmmaking skills directly from my favourite movie director Martin Scorsese, as well as trying to get back in the cooking game with Roy Choi's amazing course on intuitive cooking. Seriously, my kitchen is a mess, but my belly has never been more grateful. For just $10 a month, an annual membership with Masterclass gets you unlimited access to courses on your phone, computer, smart TV, or even via audio-only modes. Even better, every new membership comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee, and 88% of members feel that the service has made a positive impact on their lives. And to put the cherry on top of that cake, right now, What Culture Gaming listeners get an additional 15% off any annual membership at masterclass.com forward slash gaming. That's 15% off at masterclass.com slash gaming. What's that? You want it one more time? Well, that's the URL masterclass.com forward slash gaming. Right, now I'm going to watch Tony Hawk try to teach me how to ollie properly. I'll see you all soon. Opens it faster, and I just remember thinking that is a level of interactivity I personally <laughs> haven't seen in a 3D space. Right. The ability to uh, creep up against a wall, go into cover, and jump around and yeah. shoot. Yeah. At the time, that was mind blowing. Mine as well, was like, you know, there was that stuff. There was a, another quote from Kojima in a magazine interview at the time saying that there was an obsession with um, it was uh, motion capture stuff or going into motion capture, and he wanted to hand animate everything. So they they did as like uh, Kojima Productions. I guess at the time it was just Konami. But yeah, the fact that like bodies all slump on the stairs, or like the fact that all the glass can shatter in the um, in the the kitchen area, the cafeteria area. Um, you can read the magazines if you shoot them off the wall. Yeah. Like the ice cubes melt. All things that like, just if you explored every little inch of that space you were finding at the time. Um, I remember showing my dad at the time um, <laughs> that bit when you hold someone up. And I was like, look dad, I can, I can kneecap him. Look, look dad, I can shoot him in the arms. And, uh, and I was doing that. My dad was like, Are you, what is this game? Just as, as cause the guy, obviously the guards in the game, the more you wound them, they just kind of stand there. They can't go anywhere. Yeah. And, uh, and then eventually you can like shoot them in the face or whatever. Like looking back, it was ridiculous. But yes. young me was just exploring the possibilities of the system. Um, but yeah, stuff like that, where, um, like you said, you can get more items or you can like, um, you know, get more um, 
like the things that you might want to use in that mission or whatever. It was just a level of interactivity that like, even if you argue it's not necessary, I think because the way the industry's gone, where most productions don't even allow for that stuff anymore, yeah. like those extra little bits of flair. And um, the fact that it's all in there is like phenomenal. Um, my number three is Grand Theft Auto 3. Whoa. Take that world. It's the best one. Is it the best one? Tell I me more. I think so. I just, I mean, again, it's what it meant at the time, but I think even when you go back to it now, there's a certain feel to GTA 5 that I just, I love. I love how rain swept and muggy and like sort of foggy a lot of the streets are. I love the idea of the sort of neon color palette that it has. It has this great like criminal underworld vibe to it. And yes, the mission design is like open-ended to a fault if you go back to it now, but I did not care the first time I went through it. If I want to just use a cheat code and make a rocket launcher to like assassinate some dude on a dock, yeah. then I will. And I'll blow him into the sea. And so, like, that whole thing of just Rockstar giving you, like, uh, open-ended mission structure of this needs to be taken here, this person needs to be killed, you need to def defend yourself against this wave of enemies or whatever it is, they would move away from that so much as the, like, as Rockstar grew as a company or whatever, as a studio. Um, I miss that stuff. I know that that's kind of indicative of what a lot of GTA Online's mission structure is, but I'm not going to play that stuff any, uh, like much or hardly at all anymore. Um, but I just love it in a more, like, campaign story-based context and the possibilities that GTA 3 gave you, especially for the time were mind-blowing like the the writing in that game is really funny the characters are great at least they were for the time um and it's just that it's just that you can just every time you get a a mission you just think a different way every time and i love that they reward that every single time they let you mess with it you can like put a bomb in a car and place it in the way of the dude that's about to get away and then um or place it in the car the dude's gonna get into and then when you blow up in the cutscene, and already it's mission complete <laughs> and it was like one of those things where i think it was maybe naked jakey um, on YouTube did a thing about like Rockstar don't realize that that was GTA, that that was their signature element. It didn't need to be curated more than that. And as they've grown over the years, they've gotten away from that stuff and they make sure you're standing in the right place and you're shooting the person with the weapon that they've given you. And if you deviate, mission failed. You're supposed mm. to stay here. Um, so I massively uh, have such a soft spot and such a genuine love for the original trilogy, the original 3D trilogy, um, GTA 3, Vice City, and San Andreas. They were all instrumental in either my music taste or Cost. the types of games that I love, yeah. um, everything. But it goes back to that original GTA 3. Just looking forward to it so much. Again, that best friend I mentioned before with Metal Gear Solid 2 was the dude that rang me saying GTA 3 is out. We didn't realize it was out yet. We were just going off magazines and stuff. Um, it was like on a Saturday and he was just like, it's out, go get it. It's out right now, go get it. <laughs> and I remember just like grabbing my like remaining PS1 games and just like shuffling them all together. Mum, please, can we go to the shopping center um, and just begging her to go get it? It's an 18. I was like 10 yeah. or whatever I would have been at the time. I think I would have been about 10 um, and just begging her to let me get it. And it was, she did, which is hilarious. <laughs> um, but getting home that afternoon with GTA 3 and it just being, it changed everything. Everyone knows this now. It yeah. changed a lot of the way the games are designed and everything. Um, but again, it's one of those games that at the time, it was just next level. It just, it had all these different ideas and it just executed them perfectly. I never owned GTA 3, but my cousin did. And right. I used to go around <clears throat> his all the time to play this game and later on Vice City. And I remember jumping into it, having no idea what it was initially because, mm. you know, I was again, a bit too young to follow the magazines or be online or mm. whatever to know what Grand Theft Auto even was. My only experience right. with the franchise was the very first Grand Theft Auto, which I hated because you know, it's this top-down thing, mm -hmm. completely unlike Grand Theft Auto 3 on, uh, onwards. Mm -hmm. um, so I had no expectations for it all, didn't expect to like it, <laughs> played so it, and thought, what is this? This is unreal. Quick. It's funny how, like, because I think there's about 
six years between us, I think. Like, I'm yes, going to be 34 this years. year. And uh, it's one of those things where, like, just that little bit of time, like, I I grew up with GTA from the original. Again, me in the 1975 John Wolf played <laughs> GTA 1. Um, that was the, one of the first games that, well, not one of the first games, but one of those instrumental games that we played together. And I remember his dad, because um, I asked to borrow it, and we were, like, sitting in my living room as, as my parents talked to his parents, going, like, how bad is this? Because yeah. it says 18 on the box. And um, and then just being, well, you know, it's, it doesn't look that real, so, like, it's fine. And, uh, and me and John just, like, playing so much of that game but yeah I was with GTA 1 through GTA 2 2 was the first one I bought Um, and then looking forward to 3 and then like obviously the leap was like Unbelievable! That's crazy. I don't know. My my um, again. My my young um, gamer brain had become so accustomed <laughs> to the likes of Crash Bandicoot and Tekken Three mm. that playing Grand Theft Auto One alongside those games, I thought, well, this is old and this hey, is yeah, bad. I don't yeah. want to play this. However, Grand Theft Auto Three was not old. It was not bad, <laughs> and I did want to play it. And you know, as an introduction to open world 3D sandboxes, what an introduction, the freedom that you mentioned there, mm. not only in the missions, but in the, just the random player, um, incredible. I'm in, I'm, it's interesting that you went for three over, I know people love San Andreas, for me, Me Vice City was my personal Mm. favorite. Vice City's Um, got the soundtrack. Vice City absolutely has the soundtrack, and to me, the colors of Vice City and the setting of Vice City was a little bit more appealing, but... GTA 3 is the one that I appreciate more as time goes on because, like you said, that kind of um, uh, depiction of the city, the mm. the vibe that it has, is um, it's it's kind of stood the test of time like a lot of these games have. Mm-hmm. Um, unfortunately, when I went back to play the definitive edition, I couldn't quite um, vibe with the mission structure mm. all of these years on. And I think that's kind of because when I played GTA when I was younger and mm. when I was a teenager, it was, to me, it was... It was all about the cheats. I had rarely finished a Grand Theft Auto game, even though I played them all the time. For me, it was, you know, spawning out, spawning in all the weapons, oh, yeah. spawning yeah, in yeah, a yeah. flying car, being able to uh, use that car to then swim or whatever it was. <laughs> and it's such a shame that's gone away. Those cheats were great. That's true. I think they, like I said, that whole open-ended mission structure thing kind of encouraged you to do that stuff. Like, oh, like you know, I need to chase a target down. I'm going to spawn a tank and yeah. I'm just going to like blast him out the road or whatever. Um, yeah, that side of it was just absolutely gorgeous. I also think, um, gorgeous, gorgeously playable. Um, the slow-mo stuff as well really understated aspect of GTA but like the stunt ramps that used to be in the original trilogy I love GTA 3's map that's one of the reasons why I prefer it to Vice City and San Andreas for me it was the perfect size yeah. I could memorize every alleyway every getaway route everything and just do these incredible five star wanted runs where I was being chased and I'm like you know power sliding around corners and I hit a ramp as it goes into slow-mo and all the sounds go like you know like super slow-mo for the sirens and everything I love all that stuff I love Man, it so much I don't have it on here but I love Grand Theft Auto 5 because of the reasons that you just mentioned there. I've kind of talked about this before, mm. but Grand Theft Auto V's sandbox is something that I kind of have memorized. Right. It's like I've lived there myself. I do know all the streets. Mm. I know the best route to escape the cops or to get to this location. And that is true for the other Grand Theft Auto games mm. as well. They have such a sense of place. And because there's such limited fast travel, you have to get to know every kind of inch of it to Mm. maximize your efficiency throughout the game. And that's really cool because it makes for spaces that are memorable 20 years later. Like, I love the Assassin's Creed games. We mentioned that on the first part of this podcast. Mm. I can't remember the streets of them, but I can remember the streets of Vice City. I can remember the streets of Grand Theft Auto 3. I didn't play San Andreas enough to remember those, but I imagine I would have had I did. 
That, that's that. Yeah, my the original trilogy. Like I love threes. If you think of it as one big level, I love that as a level. Um, Vice City and San Andreas were still manageable for me. They lost something when they went more realistic because, like, for four and five, I just couldn't memorize that stuff as well. Right. Um, not to the degree that I could with the originals. Um, your number three, sir. My number three, Scott. Hilariously, we've synced up again in a way because it's a oh. rock star game, oh. and it's Red Dead Redemption Two. Yeah. This thing was. I knew it was something <laughs> special when I was playing it. I took time off work to mm. play through it. And initially, I kind of worried if it was a little bit too slow. I remember being in the first area in Strawberry and wondering, is this hitting as much as Red Dead Redemption 1? It's right. a little slow to get going. The controls are famously a little bit intentionally, but a little bit sluggish. Mm. You're supposed to really indulge in every lengthy animation in this game. But after about 10 hours, I just was completely <laughs> just a in hours. love. Well, I, I, I liked it before that. Hey, I'm a Final Fantasy 16 fan. This is it. I didn't think it was a bad game. I thought it was an amazing game. Mm. I'm just talking about, I didn't know if it was going to go on to be an all-timer. Yeah, yeah. And then after I hit the 10-hour mark, I realized this is an all-timer because that we just talked about giving you a sense of place in a world. And I've never felt like I've lived in a world more than I have with Red Dead Redemption 2. It's depiction of like the dying embers of the Old West. Mm. I find so thematically rich and interesting to explore. To me, it's still the game that blurs the line perfectly between um, story-driven cinematic structures and freeform, almost RPG-esque open-world exploration. Because Arthur Morgan as a character who is, if you don't know, if you're one of the five people who haven't played Red Dead Redemption 2, is the person you play as in the game. But everyone's Arthur Morgan is a little bit different like the way you style him can Mm. radically change his appearance the way you role play as him in the open world and you know whether you save people whether you kill them whether you become an absolute tyrant with a massive bounty or whether Mm. you try to be as altruistic as you can it relates to the player in a slightly different way and i think that's such an interesting balance to hit especially with a rock star protagonist mm. who which as you just mentioned there is usually so tightly scripted it's usually like you're playing you're playing the part of someone they have already defined yeah, whereas yeah. this i felt you had way more input over that character and i loved that as a means to role play because I spend 200 hours playing through Red Dead Redemption 2 twice, and I will spend even more time going through it again in the future because I just love being out in that world. Mm. I love exploring it. I love living and pitching my tent and hunting down these legendary animals and coming back to the main camp completely filthy and needing to have a wash (laughs) wash and needing to have a shave and indulging in that element. There's so many other parts that I love about it, but I'll just stop talking here. No, man. Uh, Indulging in that element is... Is oh man, what a what a tranquil and weirdly um, serene experience. Honestly, it's a like, game about shooting people in the head. Yeah, man, I've always thought that it was the closest thing to VR without the goggles that you could yeah. get. Like it is just living that life. Like you end up doing things in that game, like you said, involving making sure your character is clean or giving them a shave or letting their grow, uh, letting their beard grow out and letting them become filthy or whatever it is, because it reflects where the character might be in the story. Like I remember going out uh, up into the woods after like the whole thing happens with Mary. 
um, not to go into specifics or whatever, but I remember like all that stuff playing out and then going off out into the woods. I had a big sort of blue duffel coat on. I let his beard grow all the way out. I was being hunted by the law and yeah. I just went up into the woods. I, there was a cabin up there, but I couldn't go in it, but it was there. And I just thought it was like, I'm just going to like sit here and whoever comes for me, like I'll kill them all. I don't care. Like whatever. And just having that moment. And then, uh, and afterwards, like going back down and sort of um, getting back into the rest of it and everything. And um, it was just one of those things where, like, yeah, Red Dead 2, it, it didn't vibe with me anywhere near as much as Red Dead 1. Yeah. But I, uh, it is one of those sequels that I love that it exists. And I still largely love my time with it. My favorite part by far, I think it's chapter three or four, uh, when it's the most open-ended, when you just have, like, Dutch's camp in the middle. Yeah. And you can donate stuff to it. There's loads of customization for the camp. Um, and you can just spend as long as you want in that chapter. You can go fishing um, or whatever. And I just that was when I just loved the depiction of the Old West. And I thought... For me, it was like it's a playable version of, um, is it Once Upon a Time in the Old West, the movie? Once Upon um, a Time in the West. Once Upon a Time yeah. in the West, uh, the Old West. <laughs> and um, there's a, movies like that that have like like Old Westerns, some Westerns have a certain pace to them that I find excruciatingly slow. Right. But I do get why it is. Like I imagine living life back then was excruciatingly slow. And um, I think it's effective. And I um, I remember reading about how for Red Dead 2, they took loads of influence from paintings that were made at the time. Yeah. These big sweeping shots of mountain ranges and everything and making that playable alongside that tonality of like, it's a dusty ass trail. Yeah. And um, things will happen, but there's a joy in that when they do happen. That's it. That's it, right? I think um, I think it was Noah Caldwell-Gervais who mm. did a great video on the entire Red Dead series, but referred to it as like, is is dense and as rich as like any piece of literature about the yeah. West that he's ever read, and it does feel, you know, it does feel like literature when you're playing totally. it. Like it has that richness to it, that kind of um, lovely languid pace with all of these interesting characters that you come across, each with their own interesting backstories and deep, complex thoughts and feelings, at least for the most part, and encountering those people and having just conversations with them around the campfire Mm. and just getting those moments where you're in the camp and you're not shooting anyone, there's no action set piece going off, but everyone's having a party because they've just pulled off a big heist or whatever, Mm. and you just get to spend the night walking from one group of friends to another group of friends, drinking your virtual beer <laughs> and they're singing songs and oh they're playing God, the cards. Scenes. Yeah, and yeah. you're getting to know them, you're bonding, you're making like real relationships within the game, which of course makes it all the more tragic because this is ultimately <laughs> a tragedy of a tale. Mm-hmm. But in those, it's, it's kind of like what I love about The Last of Us Part Two in that it's this kind of bleak game. It's about the end of mm. an era. It's about characters who for the most part, we know are doomed because we know their fates in Red Red Dead Redemption 1, Mm. which is a sequel to this game. But it's about finding the pockets of happiness in spite of the entire world around you being this nihilistic place. It is life itself. (laughs) And it's honestly, those party sequences are the closest I've come in a video game to replicating the vibe of a real party and those fleeting Mm. but impactful moments of interaction that you get when Mm. you're socializing. So it gets the characters down like really well. I love Arthur, I love John, I love everyone, Abigail, you know, Um, but just kind of like the sense of scale to it, the sense of discovery. No other Rockstar game has achieved this for me, but the sense of discovery in Red Dead Redemption Mm. 2 manages to like, rival Skyrim genuinely in that there's so much going on in the world that is unmarked Mm. and you might stumble across a cabin that has this fascinating story inside it that a bunch of players will never Mm. see. You're always stumbling across 
stuff that punctuates your journey and it's not just the quality of the main quest it doesn't feel like the side missions are just added on um in an arbitrary way mm. like raid five bandit camps you know <laughs> do x amount of whatever it feels authored each yep. one feels like it has a purpose and it, it stays with you in a way that so many other um video game side missions haven't at least in my experience and that's why i liken it to an rpg like skyrim because yeah, it has yeah, yeah. all of those elements of discovery within it and i just i i mean i'm sure it's like thousands and thousands of um people power that contributed to it but it's such it's still the biggest game that i've ever played it's the most dense game that i've ever played the most detailed game that i've ever played um and on any day can vie for the top spot of my list absolutely honestly like as i always say thought of it as like i said the the vr without the goggles but i also think it's a triple a game with an indie soul yeah. like you can tell it's somehow it's a miracle how authored it still feels like it does feel like Dan Houser's like big opus to like I like I did a whole video on how I think it's more of him reflecting on Rockstar's own trajectory across the last sort of 20 plus years um, but it's just one of those things where like yeah every single piece of it is t is so detailed and so just doesn't feel remotely procedurally generated it feels like a team of people specifically put in every individual blade of grass yeah like it is unbelievable how detailed that thing is I think it's worth um, sort of uh, highlighting the like more occult stuff you can find as well because I think a lot of like old west folklore like there's a whole there's tons of stories about what people found out on the trail and like obviously back in the day there was no way to corroborate information so there's so many like um mythology stories like uh, folklore tales that exist specifically in cowboy stories um or in the old west and they have that here where if you it was like the paying off the bigfoot stuff from san andreas like yeah. you can find a vampire out there you can yeah. find pretty much satan himself you can find a cabin of people who worship that dude and um, the guy with the top hat from the original game and i just love that they pay those things off as well where it's like if we're talking about this is this living um, encapsulation of all things Old West, like yeah. as a literary text, then part of that is the darker side of it and the, the, the spooky side of cowboy stuff as well. Absolutely. It's about the myth of the Old West mm. in all of its weird mm. aspects. It's about like the kind of mainstream myth that we all know, you know, the kind of basic cowboy mm. stuff, but then you get into the, the more mythological, supernatural side of things. Um, and I just like that it has scope for every aspect of you know those old west stories if you like westerns in any mm. way you'll find something in here to latch onto i think i knew it was going to be special when in its opening stretch when you first get um free control of arthur and you're going towards strawberry mm. i found it this is grim it's, it's gross but i found like a severed arm on the side of <laughs> the road nice and i followed the blood trail from this severed arm and found this like horrible serial killer crime scene okay um which nice. i did not find this at all i found it in the first like five hours of right. the game which kind of lent like allows you to go on this game-wide search for mm. who was performing these kills who is the murderer behind this like what's going on and i just thought having that in such an unmarked way in what was the to me mm. the opening filled me with joy because it made me wonder well what else is out there if this is here right now and you're not drawing attention mm. to it really what else am i going to find and i never felt like i knew what was around the corner for the next 100 hours. That was what used to make, um, and I guess still does when you look when you look back, Rockstar's open world games different to everything else because it did, I mean, Skyrim, Bethesda got there with Skyrim where it felt alive, yeah. but I remember GTA had that with San Andreas and because for the time, we'd never had a map that big. That was why the, all the Bigfoot stuff took off or the UFO stuff took off. And um, even the idea of Leatherface being out in the forest was a thing for a bit because that map was just, at the time, so endless and it yeah. just felt like, well, who knows? No one could possibly have seen all of it, so like, anything could be out well, there. Well, we talk sometimes about, uh, you know, the, the lack of, Comp the 
the lack of people who finished Red Dead 2, mm, mm. and I love that. I think that's a testament to its greatness, that it doesn't care if you don't <laughs> see everything. Like, it doesn't care if you don't finish the story. It doesn't care if you don't see all of these unmarked events that are happening in the world. Okay. Because to me, that makes it more personal. It makes it feel like my journey through the game was different to yours. Uh, that yeah, that my Arthur had a slightly different experience, and it makes the secrets that are in there actually feel like secrets. It's not yeah. like you know, big signposted um, notices that there's something cool here, even though it does nudge you towards them. And I just, I think it takes a lot of confidence for a game to kind of hold up its arms and say, look, we know not everyone's going to see everything, but we're putting a lot of time into, into this stuff regardless because the people who do find it are going to have such a memorable time mm. with them. Yeah, I would back that. The people who did get through Red Dead 2, including both of us, like, it is one of the most memorable stories Rockstar's ever told. And I love it more as a, like I said, a wider encapsulation of where Dan House's head was at when he wrote it, um, having now left Rockstar and forming his own studio and everything. Um, my number two was Final Fantasy VII. Whoa! Which, to be fair, like you said before about your Resident Evil slot, you could rotate those through. I could rotate um, Final Fantasy VII with 6, 9, or 10, um, or arguably 16, but I don't want to claim that yet because I'm still going through it, but I am a adoring Final Fantasy 16. Um, but yeah, Final Fantasy means so much to me. Um, it was just, it was one of those first games that I played. I remember playing Final Fantasy 7 at a friend's house whose older brother was playing through it. Um, the Midgar Zolom fight, for those who will remember what that fight is, um, and just being blown away. Like, just, it's everything. Final Fantasy is everything. It's the the audible footprint. We talked about music last week and just how important music can be in a game. The orchestrations that Final Fantasy has, Nobuyumatsu, all the stuff that is in there. It just it it's so grand. Like yeah. they're, they're paying so much tribute to like grand operas and grand arts, like human history, like some of the greatest achievements that we've had in an artistic space. Gaming, Final Fantasy is gaming's version of that. Like it's almost gaming's like Renaissance paintings or whatever it is. They're just they're all so elegant and beautiful and powerful, and they're so loaded with all these different themes and conversations, like on environmentalism or whatever. Some of my favorite ones, like um, are the likes of um, Final Fantasy IX in terms of the, how sweeping that whole story is, um, or how simplistic Final Fantasy VI's depictions of characters are, but they're so charming and loving. And I love spending my time in Final Fantasy VI, but I have to go with Seven. Seven's the one that just absolutely. It was my first one like playing all the way through um, and it's just I love those characters so much like it has that eco-terrorist backbone of just yeah. like just burn the oil companies to the ground um, style thing and they go so much further with that um, but it, again it's the music it was the combat it's the way that you build your characters that's another thing an unsaid thing especially in, in the light of 16 which kind of does away with a lot of that stuff um, the Final Fantasies like 6 through 10 um, and 12 as well have such an impetus on building a, a party and how everyone bounces off everyone else and setting certain characters up for immunities or weaknesses or damage buffs or whatever it is and just thinking that way and I love Final Fantasy 7's materia system where you can just like equip anything to anyone and yeah. just like and build people that way so I love Final Fantasy so stupidly much. I was an absolute in-tears mess playing parts of Final Fantasy 16 that specifically connote the older games. Amazing. And there's one sound cue in 16 that is directly from Final Fantasy 7's open world theme, and I just broke down in the most positive way possible. I was like, this is glorious. I love it. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, it's, it's got to be the, the, the golden age of Final Fantasy. Um, if I'm going to pick one, it's going to be seven. But honestly, you could swap seven or nine on my top two. Right. And then okay. I still love six and 10 as well, um, and 12 and 16 and 15 as well. You can't really go wrong. But uh, if you're going to go right, it'll be Final Fantasy VII. Shockingly, man, I think this might be the only game on this entire list that I've not played. And that's such a shame. I've, you of need course, to. played the remake and. I'm jealous that you got to experience this when you were younger and I was too much of a turn-based combat snob that I didn't <laughs> pick it up myself because years later, man, even having not played it and only experienced what's essentially like 
part of the first part of the game through the remake, it has, like you said, the aesthetically such a great sense of place. Mm. Like Midgar alone is fascinating and still holds up now. That sort of 90s industrial PS1 aesthetic yeah. that we talk about all the time is, you know, the the soul of the first part of that game. PS1 it, horror throughout the, the, yes. especially the first bit of that game. There's lots of really horrifying stuff. Everything that happens with Sephiroth, all the stuff in Nebelheim. Like, there are so many parts of that game that are set up to be terrifying. Yeah. And they work so well because it was low-poly horror at the time. Absolutely. The way it sets up that world is so memorable. It's so unnerving. It feels like it has this oppressive nature to mm. it. And, you know, all the, obviously the themes of that game, even though I haven't finished it as a whole, but, mm. you know, just judging off what I know from the first part of the remake, like, those themes are still relevant today. Some of them are even kind of recycled in Final Fantasy 16 itself. Yeah. And, you know... we The entire franchise has got that. Yeah, yeah. I'm sure it does. I'm sure it does. Um, which makes me more excited to play Final Fantasy IX as well in Final <laughs> Fantasy VI and, you know, go into the history of this series that I've kind of wrongly ignored mm. because it feels like um, all of these themes kind of reoccur and even though they're all different settings and different characters and whatnot, I think I love Final Fantasy now and that's kind of <laughs> weird. Uh, so I, I will definitely go have to go back and play this game. I also, uh, just to cap this entry off, one of my uh, favorite one of my favorite things that a game can do is specifically use gameplay to connote a certain emotion and it's one of the, it makes video games unique. Like we are fundamentally playing them um, you know, rather than just have a cutscene. I, as much as I love that stuff, I want something to be playable if I'm going to champion gaming as a medium. And so there's one of the things in this, um, you wouldn't have had this yet because it hasn't happened yet, but it's not necessarily a big spoiler. There just is a sequence where um, you flash back to Cloud and Sephiroth being on a mission. And at that point in the game, in the original, you've been doing like 50 damage, 100 damage, something like that, very, very little. Um, and in the flashback, Cloud's telling the party about Sephiroth. And they all, you play this whole mission out where you're um, beset by this like humongous dragon who's just like burning fire. It's terrifying because you've not seen anything that big before. Um, and Sephiroth, it takes it out with an attack that does like 9999 damage. <laughs> <laughs> and they, the way that they just show his power in gameplay, the fact that you feel it, you're like, oh my god, this guy is unbelievable. And um, thankfully, in the flashback, he's a friend. Yeah. But like, oh my god, we have to deal with him in the future and whatever. Um, it's just all that stuff with like telling that level, uh, connoting that level of power directly through gameplay and directly through the way that it feels to get to that point. It's something the remake just did away with, and I hate it. I think they'll go back to it in Rebirth. Right. Um, but that was Sephiroth's introduction in the original. It was the flashback scene and then the overpowered attack and just being like, what the hell is this guy? Mm. Um, um, and they've completely overhauled that, which is one of my biggest negatives about the remake. Um, but at the time, I've, I've used at the time so much in these <laughs> podcasts, but they just did mean so much. And um, yeah, Final Fantasy VII, it, it was one of those life-defining games that I remember everything about the time that I played it. I know where I was. I know how much I loved it. And I just played through it over and over and over again. I, the music makes me cry every time. Um, it's absolutely gorgeous. What's your number two? My number two um, is Dark Souls. Oh, Souls is such a pick. Another one that could have been number one on another day. My top three um, are just well, some of the best games of all time. You know, they're <laughs> incredible. But Dark Souls, similar to you with Final Fantasy VII, like I'll always remember that where I was, where I played through mm. that game. And I got to it a little bit late. In fact, I didn't get to it until it was on Xbox Games with Gold right, um, okay. a few years after it launched. And I kind of already knew everything about it. I, I devoured stuff about its secrets. I knew about the layout of its world, mm. not in totality, but I knew a lot going into it, way more than, you know, when I played something like The Last of Us and had heard it was a great mm. game but didn't know anything about it. But what makes Dark Souls so special is that even having all of this knowledge, 
just through secondhand sources and os- cultural osmosis, it was still so surprising. Yeah. It was still so impactful. It still made me feel like I was the first person to ever play this game and, <laughs> and get it. And it took me a long time to get Dark Souls and the From Software's formula mm. is tough to penetrate for the for the first time it's like it's it throws up these walls it's obtuse it's difficult of course mm-hmm. it is in dark souls one especially can set you down the wrong path where you can just end up in a darkened catacomb <laughs> catacombs like surrounded by high level skeletons who you can't kill and it leaves you thinking or it left me thinking is this the game mm. is it supposed to be this unfair and tough of course not. You can go somewhere else um, and explore uh, other areas that are, are still challenging, mm-hmm. but you know it's kind of where you're supposed to go. And again, in terms of the space, I don't think I'll ever experience anything like Dark Souls again. And although Elden Ring came close, I love the design of Dark Souls 1, and I don't know why they moved away from it with Dark Souls 2 and Bloodborne mm. and whatnot, because the way that whole game folds in on itself with each level having a shortcut that returns you to the Firelink Shrine, which Mm. is your home base, just creates this sense of wonder and interconnectedness and mastery of the space as you go, which I know I keep talking about, Mm -hmm. that I, like... I'll remember forever the first time that I got onto one of the first big shortcuts and it took me back to Firelink Shrine after I'd spent about 10 hours just throwing my head against a wall and uncovering all of these different areas. I just knew I was playing something special and something unique. And again, going back to like the audio footprint of this game, of of these games, I kind of love that this game doesn't really have one until Mm -hmm. it does. Like Mm -hmm. the music doesn't kick in until you're facing a boss and until then you're kind of left in this bleak dying world with just the clashes of metal and the the stomps of monsters feet and you're you're left with <laughs> like your own thoughts almost yeah yeah and and i just think the atmosphere that that conjures is isolating in the best possible way and makes this entire place feel like something that is on the precipice of destruction and what are you fighting for what is what did these areas y- used to be like yeah. what what came before the era you're living in it just raises so many questions like that and you all know what dark souls is but <laughs> that's partly why i fell in love with it but not necessarily why it continues to be great all these years on no i think that a lot of people know what dark souls is at this point but it is diluted down to just like oh it's a hard game then but yeah. you, like i said you can't deny I, this is a really that would have been like my number 11 or something like it is just one of those games that at the time i mean i went through um tw- the very beginning of 2014 it was right in that initial low when the consoles launched where there wasn't really anything to sort of pick and i feel like everybody all discovered dark souls at once obviously the game originally came out in 2011 that's when i played it right okay yeah. so there was like there was always a handful of people who played it at the time who were saying like you guys need to check this thing out or you guys are missing out on this because demon souls wasn't received well either um, and then it was like a couple of years later, I feel like there was a big spike in Dark Souls players around about late 2013, early 2014. And for whatever reason, that was when I played it. It felt like that it was just always that game that you meant to get around to. Yeah. And I finally did. And I feel like I did that. And I was on the social media threads and it just felt like a lot of people discovered it at the same time. Um, and that was magical. I feel like um, whatever your first Souls game is, is the one that you'll remember for the rest of your life. Um, and Dark Souls was mine. And it just it's the same as you, like the first time through it. The sense of discovery, the sense of reward. It's so pained, that sense of reward. Yeah. But it's it's immaculate because of it. And I remember every boss fight. And I remember getting lost. And I remember, like, taking down that giant dragon with, like, a thousand arrow shots to the tail so I could get that sword. It's just something like that. When you find it, like, fast travel and everything on, on, like, opens up even more. Yeah, Dark Souls is absolutely unbelievable at this stage. I don't think... And you don't necessarily have to, but they'll never capture the feeling that Dark Souls 1 brought to the table because its mix of um, the way it handled 
handled healing, giving mm. you a set amount of Estus flasks, and you have to reach a bonfire, which is obviously a checkpoint, mm. before you could replenish them. Gave you that kind of sense that you were always at risk of losing um, progress, but that your salvation could be around the next mm. corner. And every single time you felt like you were lost and you were overwhelmed, you had nowhere to go, when you got to a new bonfire, you had that moment of pure relief of... Relief's a good word for it. Or in, like just incredible relief because you've now been able to bank all of the souls that you have, but you've also given yourself another checkpoint in the world. You've kind of conquered the area you were just in, mm. or, and it gave you a, like a, a mastery over the micro scale of the game as well as the macro mm scale of it and I think as the years go on I just appreciate that so much more and can return to the game even though I know all of its secrets now is almost almost a comfort game like I go through that I that as title well. every couple of years and obviously Elden Ring inspired me to go back through it again last year and every single time I think I'll just play a little bit right. I'll just play an hour I'll play a two I'll get the taste of it and then <laughs> another 20 hours go by and I've played the game again and I've leveled up a new um, weapon and have, you know maybe tried out a different build but unlikely because I'm a sucker for familiarity and I go with the same <laughs> build every time and it's just now it feels like home it was a place that was hostile it was a place that was dangerous mm -hmm. it was a place that was seemingly so vast I would never know it and now when I return to it it feels like home. It feels like comfort, which is so weird. Yeah, I can only back every second of that, every part of that. It's, uh, yeah, there's something about the original Souls because it happened to be our first Souls um, that I think makes it stand out even more. Um, number ones, my number one is Metal Gear Solid. You called it last yes. week. Yes. It was always going to be Metal Gear Solid. This game was, I look for, looked forward to the original Metal Gear Solid as a kid more than I've ever looked, looked forward to anything else. I was scanning every magazine. I was cutting out pieces of the magazines. I was just looking at it all the time. I could not wait for it. Um, going and picking it up, just absolutely devouring it, showing it to my parents, going, just look at this thing. I was like seven or eight, eight years old or whatever. Just absolutely adoring it. Um, dressing up as Solid Snake for a school fancy dress thing. Yes. With my little cardboard gun. Um, getting told off by the teachers because we shouldn't have any guns. But um, that was just, uh, Metal Gear Solid was everything. I absolutely adored David Hayes' performance as Solid Snake. I love Cam Clark as Liquid. Um, you know, I could reel off the rest of the cast, but it, it's every single second of this game. I just replayed it over and over again. Um, I remember keeping a tally when I was a kid. I got to about 24 playthroughs. <laughs> just going, just could not get enough of it. Memorizing every line, loving every codec core, every single thing. Um, it's just a perfect story. Like, it, I just, I love all the characters. I love the East meets West thing. I think that fundamentally is me as a person, as my tastes and stuff. Um, I love, like, you know, Western media, Eastern media, things that can walk the line between the two. I love anime as much as I love Western action movies or whatever it is. Um, and it's just, it's just that whole thing. It just, it is my perfect game because it just largely is me. Yeah. Um, and I just, I have never had more fun beat to beat with a game than the original Metal Gear Solid. Um, just keeping the needle pinned the entire way through it. So, um, yeah, I just, I, it's one of the things where it was just genuinely so fulfilling at the time. Like, you look forward to something, you build it up in your head, and it was even better than that. Oh, that's amazing, man. You know, <laughs> Metal Gear Solid 1, of course, iconic for all the reasons you just mentioned. I love it because of its horror, the horror yeah. underpinning every part of it, right from the opening, where you have those really cool, like, shots of Snake with, like, no clothes on, and he's got, like, this long, he's got, he's got like, the long hair, right? You mean in the, in the briefing scenes? In the briefing yeah, yeah, scenes. Yeah, they're optional, it, but you can check them out. Yeah, yeah, but I remember, like, looking at those and 
thinking like, who is this guy? Why right. is he retired? Why is he coming back into the fray? Then you have that lovely sequence with the music where he's swimming into the into the I guess bunker or whatever it was, uh-huh. and then you of course the go up the ele- the dock. You go up the elevator and you have that lovely title drop, and, and you see the hind D and the controller vibrates for the yeah, first time, and yeah. it was like because even then that was brand new as well. Absolutely, but all of that to me is like steeped in horror, and you only kind of descend into the badness. The more the game goes on, obviously mm. you have the iconic um, Grey Fox. I was going to say the, the Grey Fox corridor the is like Fox colon horror. horror. Which, you know, again, was way too young to see that, so it, it was stained <laughs> in my mind forever. The first fight with them, Ocelot, it just had this kind of sense of weirdness to it, a mm. sense that, like, something dangerous beyond your control is happening um, all around you mm. that I, I loved so so much, and that's not to even mention people like Psychomantis, and uh, when you get trapped in with the wolves and you're in the caves and the snowy atmosphere of Shadow Moses, what a bloody great game! <laughs> I do want to shout out because I mentioned before about Hideo Kojima getting full control when it came to Metal Gear Solid 2. Um, I should know this dude's name, I think it's Jeremy Blaustein, um, the guy that single handedly translated Metal Gear Solid 1. We did a chatty face on it the other week on like pieces of video game trivia that most people don't know. The original Metal Gear Solid completed in Japanese, given to one dude who worked for Konami. Um, who then translated it all himself, taking various sort of influences from action movies of the time and changing a lot of the terminology that's in that game. I love, because it's all it's kind of ironic because that is East, East Meets West, which is what Metal Gear is as a um, franchise identity, but Kojima apparently hated that because it wasn't his original script, which is why 2's uh, tone and the rest of that series is so, like, more him uh, as opposed to a more sort of straightforward militaristic script or a militaristic feel. However, I love that stuff in Metal Gear 1 because it grounds everything. It gives it that horror. It gives it that sense of place um, and it lets the more over the top characters kind of fit better in terms of the cohesion of that world it doesn't randomly have vamp running on water like the end of Metal Gear Solid 2 right. everything mostly makes sense um, in MGS 1 like it, it's like you know Psycho Manus, he's really good at hypnotherapy or whatever it is psychotherapy um, uh what do you call them? Hypnosis, things like that. And I always thought that that just made more sense. I just, I always loved MGS1's overall um, feel um, yeah. because of the way that it was written. It was just so grounded and meaty. And like I said, I couldn't play it enough, but that's my number one. Man, that's... Oh, it's a big oh, Metal Gear. What a be franchise, fair, eh? What a throw franchise. in as well that like MGS1 and Final Fantasy 7 or that Final Fantasy slot do oscillate a lot. Like, yeah. I mean, it's, it's that thing. If I'm listening to Final Fantasy 7's music, as I have been a lot recently, then that's my ultimate everything in life. I feel like they're like... But still, <laughs> I feel like they're the two pillars of your life. You yeah. have Final Fantasy, Metal Gear, and you'll have an undying love uh, for those forever. Can I um, indulge oh, you? Honorable mentions. Yeah, I know we're running along again, but I want to go through two, three honorable mentions really quickly. Okay. One, keeping on the Kojima front, want to shout out Death Stranding, which. Oh. Pick, pick, I'll pick, pick. never um, forget my two playthroughs of that game. They're so special to me. Mm-hmm. Um, I love the world of that, maybe even more than Metal Gear. I think it's such an uh, interesting and ambitious way to design a game around a mostly non-violent set of mechanics. You're just mm-hmm. delivering, again, the mastery of the world as you move from one place to another and you have to just, like, get over a bunch of rocks, get <laughs> over a stream. It put me in such a unique mindset playing that game that I will cherish forever. I want to shout out Outer Wilds, which is one of my favorite games because yep, yep. I talked about um, Resident Evil previously and how... A part of the joy of that game is attaining knowledge. That's all Outer Wilds is. Yeah. Like you set off to explore a solar system. You have no idea how these planets operate, and it's up to you to kind of figure them out, figure out their physics, figure out 
how they function at certain times of days mm. to um, explore the worlds in the most effective way and to solve puzzles. It is a one-of-a-kind game. Another one that I would love to just erase my memory of and then experience it fresh because I'll never get that chance again. Mm-hmm. And finally, Immortality, which I played last oh, year. Shout I won't talk about too much because I did loads of podcasts on this game, but this is another unique title that you talk about games being made for you there, Scott. Immortality <laughs> was made for me. The the, the, the the part of me that absolutely adores film history in kind mm. of those esoteric um, indie movies from the 60s into the 70s, into the 90s and 2000s, the way that it blends live-action narratives with the player's input makes you feel like you're exploring a cursed um, videotape almost mm-hmm. and uncovering the secret layers that it has, which I won't spoil. Magnificent, great, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. but my number one is Fallout New Vegas. Oh! Fallout New Vegas is a game that isn't perfect. It still has a lot of bugs to this day. It was essentially rushed out and Obsidian didn't have time to fully finish everything they wanted uh, to put in the game. Mm-hmm. But that said, even in spite of those limitations, it's still the game that changed me the most. Because in terms of its RPG capabilities, I've never played a mainstream AAA RPG like it in terms of the complexity that it brings to the table in terms of your choices in that world, Mm. but also the stuff that people are talking about. You know, so many RPGs say, well, there are no good guys, there are no bad guys, there are no right decisions, there are no wrong decisions, but there always are. There's (laughs) always, like, a binary choice. You can be good, you can be evil. In Fallout New Vegas, man, they blur the line so well. The people you think are heroes have their flaws, and there are so many rogue agents with their own motivations within that game, so so much politicking that you have to navigate so many um, different factions that you have to appease Mm. or you can go against so much potential for role playing that I love it but more importantly than that for me it's the setting it's this kind of um, nuclear atomic western that of course Fallout has always had this kind of retro vibe despite being futuristic but to place it in the Nevada desert and Mm. kind of rely on a bunch of western tropes to me is magnificent. This is my favorite gaming soundtrack of all time, getting me into the likes of, you know, Big Iron playing that tune while I'm exploring this world to me is what I think of, again, when I think of video games in general. And as someone who loved Fallout 3, absolutely adored Fallout 3. Mm -hmm. At the time, it was my favorite game ever made. Um, New Vegas just almost makes that game unplayable for me now because of <laughs> the improvements that it adds and the, like I said, the complexity it adds to the writing. I just think it does interesting things from moment one to moment one million. And it's got great DLCs as well. I love this thing. Someday I'll play through this game. No, man. I've I... played so little of New Vegas because I bounced off Fallout 3. I didn't finish that game. I got to a point where I was like, had a weird like uh, save lock thing where it, it had auto-saved coming out of a door and I came out of the door and then there was a super mutant and I got flattened no. and I just got flattened and over and over and over. I can't actually do anything about this. Um, that was obviously my mistake in terms of making the save, but I couldn't revert to anything. And then I played New Vegas. I agree with you that the atmosphere and everything was incredible. I love the music and I love the start of it and the way, the different ways that all the stuff with the initial settlement can go yeah. was like very like, um, you know, illuminating as to how open-ended it was going to be, but I just never stuck with it. We talked about like um, video game introductions and how Silent Hill 2 is great because you get a letter from your dead wife and what <laughs> a great starting point for a game. New Vegas opens with you getting shot in the head yeah. and buried and then being 
being saved and miraculously not being killed and hunting down your murderer <laughs> in this kind of futuristic dystopian New Vegas strip that is like the the lifeblood of this entire setting. And I just think that is magnificent when you get to the strip itself. There's so much interesting stuff going on, so mm. many different people vying for control, so many stories um, hidden in the underbelly of it. And as an RPG lover, it doesn't get better than this, especially because I love the way it blends in, you know, just quite compelling action as well. It is a first-person shooter, and while it's not going to blow your mind, it's not <laughs> Doom, it's pretty competent. It's it's still well, a lot of fun to mess around with those mechanics, and um, it's, it's, it's oh, I love what a game. It's worth saying that um, it is one of the first games to receive the, the uptick treatment from Xbox. Like it, I don't know if it has auto-HDR, but they freed up the frame rate. I'm pretty yeah. sure it's 60. Um, I think the resolution's 4K as well. It's it, But either way, it definitely plays a lot better, a lot smoother now than it ever did before. It was one of the most notoriously broken games at launch, yeah. um, which is a hell of a lot. Um, but yeah, that's one of those games that I just need to get to. It's 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 what Final Fantasy VII is to you. Absolutely. It's Fallout New Vegas. Um, running down 5 to 1, uh, The Last of Us, then, sorry, number 5, The Last of Us, number 4, Tekken 3, number 3, GTA 3, number 2, Final Fantasy VII, and number 1, Metal Gear Solid. That's a lovely selection what of a games. Beautiful Scott. selection. 5 to 1 for me is Resident Evil Remake, Metal Gear Solid 2, Red Dead Redemption 2, Dark Souls, and Fallout New Vegas. Also, in, I mean, an exemplary selection of titles. <laughs> I feel like your stuff is a lot more, um, like, holds up the more recent few years of gaming. Like, it's worth, like, you know, just pointing out Disco Elysium, Immortality, etc. Mine are a lot more eye-widening when I was a teen or a kid or something like that. Those first experiences through those IP, both as valid as each other. Absolutely. And honestly, surprising for me. I thought mm. my list would be full of older games, but I think it's, for me anyway, a testament to how, even though we have a lot of complaints about recent gaming, um, history, there are so many gems to be found mm. and still innovations being made because I feel like every year, maybe every two years, I find a game that I think that's in my top 20 of all time. You yeah, know? Oh, yeah. My, my roots are definitely further ago, but I think overall it's worth cataloging the last sort of few decades of gaming because there are some absolute bangers. Um, but yeah, for now, this has hilariously been The Winder by Finn Scott Telford. That's been Josh Brown. Always a pleasure, Scott Telford. Always a pleasure to be heard by all of you. Let us know what your favorite games of all time are over on Twitter and we'll catch you throughout the week. Goodbye. Bye-bye. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.